Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Be Dratty. Our friends over at Be Dratty, it's a new decade, and they want you to look good in the new decade. So why not go through your closet, check out those polos. I know I have a ton I need to get rid of that are, you know, those five-year-old, four-year-old, three-year-old polos, maybe even just one-year-old. They they wear out. Be Dratty polos don't wear out that quick, but... You know, a lot of polos, you could use, you know, some trimming down in the closet and treat yourself to some, a new look in uh, the new decade. My favorite polo is the Liam polo. That's the original polo. It's a solid knit, and it's made from really soft Peruvian Pima cotton. So that is the magic of Beach Ratty. You feel like you're wearing, like, a, the best T-shirt in the world, and it's a polo shirt. It's low maintenance. It gets better with age, and... The great thing is you can dress it up or you can dress it down. You can, you know, you can wear it to a bar if you wanted after a round of golf or, you know, you can look nice for going to work. So check it out at BeatDratty.com. One of the neat things they do is is if you don't want a, a logo, you can monogram it with your personal initials. So on BeatDratty.com, on the Liam Polo, you can add a monogram. So you can add your initials to it. And uh, if you like... The Liam Polo and you like the fried egg, you could get a fried egg polo on the pro shop. So check it out, the Liam Polo at BeatDratty.com. Hey guys, sad news in the golf course design uh, world with the passing of Pete Dye. So Garrett uh, and I wanted to do a little bit of a Pete Dye tribute podcast. And uh, what we did was, you know, Pete Dye obviously had a profound influence on golf course architecture. Uh, and it's, he's been talked about a ton on this podcast. So what, what I did was I kind of pulled together all of the different clips and, uh, architects talking about Pete Dye over the years of this podcast. And we kind of built an episode around these clips and we figured it'd be a great way to remember one of the most influential architects of, uh, in the history of golf. So here is uh, Garrett and I's episode on uh, Pete Dye with uh, excerpts from many of uh, today's greatest architects. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So basically what we're doing with this episode is we are collecting a few clips from the podcast going back even a couple of years where we have had various people, mostly architects, talking about Pete Dye and Pete Dye's influence. And I think that we were both surprised, Andy, when we were going through these clips, how rich they were and how much Pete Dye meant to how many different people. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think uh, you obviously hear it with everybody talking about how influential he was, but then listening to people like Bill Kaur or Tom Doak talk about it, Jim Urbina talk about directly working with him and 
and the profound effect and impact that he had, especially all the different stories and just getting it from the state of architecture before Pete died to after is just unbelievable. And I think that's, uh, I, I, you always, I remember those clips. I didn't remember Bill Kors clip being so, I mean, it, it, it's crazy. Cause you know, you do the interview and I kept, I remember him talking about Pete and I kept pulling on the thread, but I didn't remember all the stuff he said and re listening to it. It was, it was pretty crazy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, is uh it's a great clip and um and so this is basically how this episode is going to go where we're going to we we basically have a batch of clips and we're going to introduce them, play them for you and discuss them a little bit. We thought that this would be a a good way to reflect on Pete Dye's legacy, his impact on golf architecture. So the very first clip we have is Bill Cor discussing among other things, how he got into working with Pete Dye, how Pete Dye changed architecture. How, I mean, how he even wanted, how he be, wanted to become a golf architect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah it's, I mean, it's amazing. Um, so, yeah. So here's, here's the clip. Bill Corr from episode 59. But no, it was actually after I graduated from Wake Forest and I was about to go to graduate school at Duke and uh, Uncle Sam decided that I should make a bit of a detour. <clears throat> and so I had spent uh, two years in the Army and as I was get, about to get out, I saw a golf course near my home in North Carolina uh, in a town called High Point, North Carolina. And man by the name of Pete Dye was designing a course there. And the course, was, it was called Oak Hollow Public Golf Course. And I had never heard of Pete Dye, and I knew nothing about this golf course. And somebody said, oh, they're building a new golf course not, not so far away. And I remember when I was, uh, uh, you know, I had a weekend away there from the, from the Army, and I'd gone home, and I went out to look at it, and it's when Pete was doing things very much like Harbor Tail. Shorter courses, finesse, yeah, railroad sleepers, the whole thing people think about. And uh, it was just fascinating to me. I, this was, of course, in the era of Robert Trent Jones Sr. And uh, when I saw this golf course, I thought, gosh, that's, that's kind of, that's very interesting. And it, I think more than anything, uh, Andy, that's when out there that day walking around the course wasn't open yet but it wasn't too far away from opening and I just remember thinking, I wonder how you do this I love golf and I, I think I know a good course when I see one uh, but how does this happen what's the process and you know having been away from school for over two years it's that decision making do I do I go to graduate school and then I'm thinking, well, I'm single. I don't, I don't need much money or anything. I could, uh, I might like to see how this is done. So uh, I remember the guy who was out there watering. It was on a Sunday afternoon. The guy was out there watering. Of course, I asked him who did it. He said, I have some man named Die. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it didn't mean anything to me at the time. This was in 1971. And, uh, I said, do you know how to get in touch with him? 
He said, oh, I'm sure his name's in the superintendent's Rolodex in here. We walked, he drove me back to the maintenance shop. We walked in there and he takes a, the old fashioned Rolodex where you turn it around with all the you know, cards, flip cards with, with names and addresses and phone numbers. And sure enough, he finds it, finds Pete. He gives me his number. I began calling Pete to see Badger him to see if I could get a job just to see how this was done. So that was the moment. How long did it uh, take to get a job? <clears throat> uh, quite a while, actually. I mean, uh, I called Pete. And, uh, he, uh, I remember I blatantly made up a story that I was going to be in Florida, uh, which I really didn't have any reason to be in Florida, but as soon as I was going to get up, get my discharge from the military. And uh, he said, well, if you're ever down here, you know, call me. So I just, I made my way down to Florida after I was discharged from the military, and I called him. And he, uh, he, interesting enough, it was another, of all things, on a Sunday afternoon. And, and Pete was, he was a huge Miami dog. And this is in the time when the Dolphins were dominant. Yeah. You know, the year actually, I think that they went undefeated. Shula, Shula Don Shula, Larry Zonka, Bob Green, these guys. They, you know, it's just Pete was such a huge fan. They were seventy-two Dolphins. That's it. Yeah, so they went undefeated, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So I remember calling, and Pete, he, you know, he had no, no interest whatsoever in what I wanted to talk about but I do remember he, he he said where are you I said well I'm at the whatever it is I can't remember some little motel hotel there yeah. Delray Beach and uh, he said sure I can talk to you he said I'll be over there but what he's gonna come over here he wanted to watch the football game he had a bunch of folks at his house he came over there I didn't know who I didn't know what to look for I didn't know I didn't know what he looked like or anything. I'm just asking people as they walk in the door, are you Pete Dunn? They all went, no. Well, then he, anyway, he, he walks in and he says, so you want to talk about golf architecture? I said, yes. He said, uh, all right, let's go to your room. I'm like, what? And, and so here we go to my room. He plops down on the bed and gets the TV face, turns the football game on. That's all he wanted to do was watch the football game. So he sort of absentmindedly talked to me while he watched the football game. So that was, that was uh, and then he said, well, we're eventually, we're going to be doing a golf course up near home in North Carolina. It turned out to be the Cardinal Club in Greensboro. Uh-huh. He said, you can come out there and maybe, maybe we'll find something for you to do. It was another year or more after that, but they actually started the Cardinal. And I went out there. He didn't remember me from anybody. I mean, he just, yeah. you know. Hey, you were you served I was in, persistent. And you served in a media media you, you were you you fixed this problem. You wanted to watch the dolphins and you're probably a great excuse for him to get out of the Exactly. House. He was able to sit there and watch the entire game. <laughs> game was over, gone. You know. And, and so uh, but it was uh, it was just one of those sort of odd things that, that happens. What um you know Everybody talks about the railroad ties, and then you know people remember him for the TPC courses he built, like the, you know the regular fan. But like, what would you say is the most underappreciated aspect of Pete Dye's work as an architect? 
he changed the direction of golf architecture twice. Yeah, I know no one else has ever done that. I mean, he started, you know, he, he first changed it with courses like Harbor Town uh, when Robert Trent Jones Sr. was doing the exact opposite, doing, you know, par 72, 7,000 yard championship golf courses. That was the thing. That was the, the motto. That was the, the selling point. And, and, uh, Pete went the exact opposite direction. Shorter, finesse courses, quirky. He had seen, he and Alice had seen the railroad ties when they played a lot in Scotland and thought, well, that could work. We can do some of that. And uh, it was just something that people in this country, unless they had traveled to Scotland or Ireland, they, they just weren't used to. So um, the fact that Harbor Town was so well received, I think the first tournament there was in 1970, and if I recall, Arnold Palmer won. Yeah, and and so the uh, the fact it was so well received instantly put him, you know, in the public eye as far as the golf course architect. And then pretty soon, everything you saw started going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Well, then when the TPC Jacksonville came in, which was many years later, but. He changed it again, completely mm-hmm. there. So I know I know no one else who's who's done that, who's actually changed. And <clears throat> once Pete did Harbor Town and the finesse course type type situation, and then when he changed to the more challenging, longer, whatever you want, how you want to describe it, uh, TPC type course, the next thing he saw was everyone was doing the same it was just he he literally changes not just the direction but if you watch the progression you saw many courses appear like like pete's early course at harbor town but then after tpc you saw many many courses appear that suddenly looked like that golf course. yeah the architecture <clears throat> industry through time has changed so many times it's it's different it's kind of crazy, but for one man to do it twice. Yeah, I know of no one else has done that. Uh-huh. Um, so, a lot of people say that Pete Dye was a penal architect um, versus a strategic one. What, what would you consider him being? Well, Andy, I think certainly in, I'm a bit partial to Pete's. Harbor Town, so to speak, yeah. uh, uh, phase, where finesse was a little more uh, at, the, at the cornerstone of the golf course. And I, I think then they were extraordinarily strategic, playing to certain positions to get to other, to get to angles and things. I think as, as Pete saw the game changing, mm-hmm. meaning players hitting the ball farther and farther and farther, and, and the, the I think he's even changed to try to challenge those those players at the TPC courses. Um, they were still strategic. They were certainly strategic for you know the best players. They still wanted to play to certain positions, usually right next to some very visible hazard. And uh, um, T would always give you something to look at. There was always something in your eye as a player. 
And more often than not, if you could play close to that, you, you had an advantage in, in some way. But um, I think Pete and Alice and, and the work that they've done through the years, is uh, it's just some absolutely fascinating, fascinating courses. And, and yet you do hear about, well, it's very painful. I think a lot of that depends on what teams you play from. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it, the um, situation is, is more the impression that comes from the TPC course type yeah. phase of their, of their architecture. So um, I see it as, as strategic and penal both. I, I I agree. I, I think I I wanted to, I think I fall on the strategic side because and I'm from, I grew up playing Pete Dad course in Florida like an all every family vacation and you know still when I go there it's all angles and um, you know you do have to be a little bit better of a player but the strategy is so good and all that stuff. Yeah, no, it's uh, again Pete and Alice were were amazing with that. And the thing they were able to do too, I think Andy's, <clears throat> they could do some really unusual type country. And whether you want to call it the mounds or the, even the, you know, the railroad ties along the water and then the certain types of greens, shapes and, and angles, and but some really abrupt things that, that people weren't necessarily used to seeing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet they worked. Yeah. It's very, very seldom you'll ever see a Pete Dye golf course, even a hole on the Pete Dye golf course, that doesn't function from a playing standpoint. And other people who then said, oh, that's what's selling now. That's what I'm going to produce. Never, I don't, oftentimes didn't have the same insights as to how you truly play golf within the confines of the golf course. And so you would see some um, knockoff models, shall we say, of TPC courses that uh, that probably were far too painful because of the, the, there was just probably not that bit of insight as to how will this actually play? How mm-hmm. will this actually it, it looked like it, but it didn't. Exactly. Visually, because it might have mounds and pot bunkers and or water down the side or certain angles and things, people are always not the same. But when it came down to the ability to maneuver your golf ball through the golf course and be successful, uh, a lot of times, it, you know, other people just didn't have the same insight that Pete did as to how to make that work. So Andy, what was something when you listen back to that clip, what was something that struck you that you didn't really remember that well from the interview itself? So I, when I when I listened back to that clip, the thing that I forgot, I you know, I always had I always remembered him earlier in that same episode talking about Perry Maxwell and the impact that Maxwell had on his career, but I forgot that he said he wouldn't have gotten into architecture had it not been for seeing that golf course in High Point, North Carolina, which happens to be uh, Oak Hollow, a uh, public mm-hmm. golf course there. And and that's the thing I think that sticks out to me was something about what Dai was doing made Core 
say to himself, well, I really want to be a part of this when he probably had thought about it before that point, right? And and something about the different way that Dai was doing the work or the, the, go- what, the way the golf course presented itself differently is what kind of ha- made him have this light bulb moment that said, I, I want to maybe look and see if I can do this for a, a career. And that's right. the thing that, you know, beyond anything else, and I think we have later clips that shed more light on on different aspects of the things that Cor was talking about. But that's the thing that stands out to me is that Dai's work in a way was inspirational and stood out amongst all the other work that was going on in that era, which was, you know, the most golf course construction work that we've ever seen. It's a very common story, in fact, where one of these architects that we're talking to goes and sees a Pete Dye golf course and says, hey, there's something different here. There's something interesting here. I should look into this further, or I should go work for this guy, or I should design my golf courses differently. It's remarkable how often that comes up. Just the act of somebody going and seeing a Pete Dye golf course in the 60s, 70s, 80s era, they were just different. There was, there was something about them that, that struck people, took them aback, and made them reassess. Yeah, you often hear there's that idea of there's something more to it. And I th- mm. I think personally, I I grew up, I we would go see my grandparents every vacation growing up, and they lived on a Pete Dye course in Florida. And whether I knew it or not, from the age of, you know, six when I would go out and hit plastic golf balls on the golf course, like till <laughs> till 20s, I, I think... I was learning about golf architecture without knowing I was learning because, you know, when I think about this golf course now, it's it's full of really interesting strategy and, and angles and there's plenty of space. And if you're in the wrong spot, you're in, you know, you're in the wrong spot because you're looking over the shot saying, I really, really don't want to hit this shot. And <laughs> if you play the, you know, if you find that line of charm and, and I think that's a lot of, with golf architecture, you just know there's something different about certain places. And and that's the way I felt growing up is I always liked going there. And I, I didn't, I, it took me a long time to conceptualize why. And I think that's with so many architects, what happens is there's just a place that's a little bit different than your status quo. It, this, this course in Florida was a lot different than the municipal golf course that I grew up playing on. And I knew that. And so the experience you're describing is the experience that a lot of different architects have had, a lot of different golfers worldwide have had. Uh, in this next batch of clips, we'll hear from Tom Doak, Brian Silva, and Jeff Mingay about their own kind of die-related awakenings. Um, so that's what you'll hear right now. Tom Doak from episode one of the Yoke with Doak. One of the very first courses I saw was Harbor Town when it was brand new. And the thing that got me hooked on golf course architecture was this little booklet that Charles Price, the golf writer, had done. It was like hole by hole diagrams. It's kind of like you for a yardage book today, except without yardages because it was 1970 and people didn't play by yardage so much. But it had like a diagram of the hole and three really simple sentences about how to play it, like, you know, this is a short par five, and if you're going for the green in two, you need to drive it left near that bunker 
Otherwise, there's going to be a tree in your way for the second shot. You know, and it was something a 10-year-old could read and understand. And golf course architecture really isn't much more complicated than that. And now, a clip from episode 26 with Andy Johnson interviewing Jeff Mingay. If you were going to say, you know, what's the one thing that you would take away from Pete Dye as an architect that, you know, really kind of like that you admire the most, what would it be? Well, I, I would say um, the the guts and the strength to, to be bold with your work. You know, I, I deal with a lot of client clubs and I just find golfers and I say this to my committees and, and memberships that I work with. Golfers are soft these days, you know, Mm -hmm. they want the golf course to cater to them. You know, you you do something bold, whether it be a deep bunker or a big contour and a green or, or something. And they're, they're, most of them are upset all the time. You know, they don't want golf to be golf. And, you know, Pete, you know, we all know Pete actually gets a bad rap, I think, because, you know, he got he got this reputation that all he did was build hard golf courses. I don't believe that to be true at all. I find a lot of his golf courses to be really fun, but there's mm-hmm. always bold features out there, you know, that, that excite you um, to play. And I just get this sense all the time when I'm working at clubs that people want to tone it down because they don't want to I mean, it sounds simplistic, but I often say they don't want to play golf. I mean, when you go out, when you go to Scotland, you go to Ireland, you know, you, you see stuff that is like bold and hard. And, you know, yeah. I got, I was, I talked to the Pete Dye one time at the, uh, well, I think it was 2008 PGA championship in Oakland Hills. I just happened to run into him and we were talking about things. And, you know, he said, let me tell you something. And I was all excited. Uh, um, he asked, you know, why do you think people play golf? And I thought I was going to get some philosophical answer. And he said simply, because it's hard. Yeah. You know, part part of the reason you play is because you always think you can do better next time, you know? And, um, you know, and again, I, I really give him a lot of credit. And I think he built his reputation on um, not being afraid to be bold. Um, and that doesn't mean make every hole bold or every course bold, uh, but you need you need some stuff that's going to excite people, want people to come back to play and thrill, come back to try and yeah, thrills and and try to try to conquer some things that are that are seemingly difficult, you know, or are difficult. And it's it's um it's challenging these days, you know. I mean, especially for a guy like me, you know, and. I'm still in the midst of building my career. I'm not a doak or a core or even a hance or anything like that yet. Um, but, you know, when you're working at a club and you see an opportunity to do something bold, you know, your first thought is, okay, how, you know, how is this going to be received? You know, am I going to be, am I going to get fired here because I want to do something that's got some real character? But, you know, and I, I follow through because I do think of guys like, like Pete Dye. And, um, and other architects, you know, you, but you, you need those type of features, you need those types of holes out there. Um, but it, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're always thinking about the potential threat when you, when you're about to build something that you know is going to be controversial. But as you know, I mean, all the great holes in the world are, are polarizing, you know, you yeah. either love them or hate them. If they're, if they just sat in the middle, um, they'd be no good. And here is Brian Silva from episode 40. Early on in my life, when I was teaching at Lake City, 
And see, um, during the summer, when there were no classes, my job was to drive around the southeast and uh, visit courses where my students were working on their summer on-the-job training thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to, see, you know, Harbor Town and well, and, and 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 even Seminole, which Pete didn't design, but he was a member of. Mm-hmm. Um, I I started to think that his courses were a little bit different than other people's courses and and it wasn't just it it was decide it was decidedly not the railroad ties or or pot bunkers or strip bunkers there was something going on there and and that kind of planted a little thing in my mind i i wish i had been bright enough to fully understand it and then when i became a usj agronomist up in the northeast i i saw lots of golf courses but I started to really like these McDonald and Rainer golf courses. Mm-hmm. There was something going on there. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I knew they were different and they were fun to play, but they were still challenging. But I still was so stupid, I couldn't really boil it down to its fundamentals. And I'm going to tell you a story I never tell in public. But we used to close the office the first week in December back when we had an office, and we'd go out to La Quinta, California. I had friends who worked for Landmark, and and we would play like Ryder Cup matches against them for a week. There'd be four of us against four of them. And we would play La Quinta Mountain, La Quinta Citrus, We'd play PGA West. We'd play the old Dinosaur. We'd play the new Dinosaur. So it was a Pete Dye extravaganza. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I felt there was something about his courses. And this is the truth, and I'm a little embarrassed about this. One night after dinner, I walked over to La Quinta Hotel. And this was in December, about two weeks after they'd had the Skins game at PGA West. Yeah. And I sat next to the fireplace, and in a little wicker basket next to the fireplace, there were the program books that mm. they sold during the Skins game. Yeah. And I, are you taping me, Andy? Oh, yeah. Okay, all right. Th- then I won't use um, great expletives. <laughs> in, in this wicker basket was a program, and I opened it up, and the center fold... You know, only a guy interested in design can go nuts about a centerfold, uh-huh. which is an aerial photograph of PGA West. And when you look down on it from the sky, immediately I said, oh, holy crap, it's all about angles. Uh-huh. I could see the angles that Pete had put in, how a green might point down uh, point at the hook side of the fairway and how there was one of his bite-off strip bunkers that went down the right side. And the more you bit off, the more you aligned with the green. And I, and I said, honest to God, I said, oh, you stupid SOB. You were on the edge of this, but it didn't, the different little points didn't all go together to to make you realize it. And 
And that day, what I thought about golf course design completely changed. So it was really um, Pete's angles hit me. I I didn't fully uh, form it in my mind or verbalize it. And then Rainer McDonald, I saw more of that. And then when I saw this picture, it completely changed the way I thought. I knew my corridors for play had to be much wider. I knew we had to cut down trees to give people uh, the the width that uh, allows alternate routes. Mm-hmm. It was really um, it was a um, interesting uh, for me awakening. For if you said to me, Brian, what would you do different? In, in your life, I would say to you, well, I would have gone to see all the golf courses I did when I was working at the college, when I was growing up, going to my dad's jobs, when I was a USG green section agronomist, but I would have gone and visited even more, and I would have stopped looking at the turf. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would have looked at what I call the skeleton, the, the tops of the tees, the top of the fairway, in the top of the green, and I would look at what angles are presented by that because I think that that is 99.9% of what allows a golf course to be strategic, but also what allows a golf course to be played by the average and less than average player, but what allows a golf course to still be mentally stimulating for an excellent player. Um, to me, it's, it's all... It's angles and almost nothing else. And so this age of the Internet, um, Google Earth is my favorite site because when I get called, hey, uh, this is so-and-so from such-and-such country club, I'm on Google Earth doing my homework um, before I get out there. And and the funny thing is, you know, they'll, they'll say to me when I'm walking, of course, so what do you think of the conditions? And I say, look, I'll tell you what I think of the conditions because I kind of – you know, I have a turf degree. I have a master's training in plant and soil sciences. I was a USGA agronomist, but I said, I'm really not here to tell you about your turf. I'm interested, and if, if you'll forgive me, I think you should be interested in the design character of your golf course. Does it present angles? Does it present alternate routes of play? And so on and so forth. So those are my, those are my influences in a long answer, Andy. So Andy, I was telling you earlier that I actually remember listening to the Brian Silva podcast when it first came out. This is before I worked for you, obviously. And I remembered that particular story about seeing the photographs that I guess it was aerial photographs of PGA West and having an awakening related to angles and about the the logic of how certain greens encouraged certain lines of play and it was just so memorable because it was so clear that this was a really important moment for Silva and and kind of a paradigm shifting moment for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I this this clip is one of my favorites, maybe my favorite in the history of the podcast for two reasons. One, because he in the middle of breaking this down said and and this was, you know, 30 40 minutes into the podcast wanted to make sure that I was recording him <laughs> right. but, or, or was, was worried that you were reco- that he would curse while you're recording him. It's like, yeah, okay. That's, that's what we're doing here. Yeah. Right. We're, this is, <laughs> this um, is a podcast. But then secondly, the, the content and just the 
overall message behind what he was saying. It was really a powerful moment. And, you know, this was before I had interviewed Bill Corr. And this this moment kind of ties really well in with what Corr talked about and the influence of Dai in the in the sense of how he he shifted and changed architecture twice, you know, and how, you know, he had he started to realize that work, you know, other people's work looked just like dyes, but there was, you know, there was a little bit different. There, there wasn't the full substance behind the work that the full substance that dye had, because these people saw what dye was doing. They realized on the surface, a lot of times, not, I'm not saying for Silva, you know, some, some people completely got it, but a lot of architects realized at the surface what dye was doing, but you know they and it, it moved architecture in these directions. It improved architecture, you know. But Dai was still the best because he he was the one that knew every layer of why he was doing this and that and this. And I think with Silva, it's a perfect example of an architect that had a great career going before this moment, and then upon seeing this and realizing it, and as he said. You know, you stupid sob. <laughs> um, it was, of course, this is what it's about, right? This, exactly. Was kind of his his idea that, of course, I mean, why didn't I see this before? It it was a moment where you know Silva planted his foot and his courses and architectural portfolio changed forever from that moment. And you see, you know, there are a lot of very very good Brian Silva independent designs now that happened and it's profound you know as he put it from seeing this aerial un- fully conceptualizing the brilliance of die because he saw it for once from the sky and mm-hmm. and i think that ha- he silva wasn't alone in in this generation of architects that had similar moments upon seeing that and and then you know from the doke clips you know just it it got it inspired people to get into design too yeah and there are a number of ways that it could do that uh, brian silva was looking at his course his pga west course from the air what jeff mingay was describing was looking at his courses from the ground i guess really is that's how you can see the boldness of dye's features and that's another way in which dye's work kind of liberated people it was so bold and at times just strange yes there were bizarre man-made features sometimes on his golf courses and that had to be liberating coming out of an era when and i don't want to generalize too much here but an era really when things were a little smoother when the approach to golf architecture and specifically to shaping was to kind of smooth things out and make things kind of uh, calm looking Dai was very different uh, he was he was willing to disrupt your emotions as you were walking through the golf course. He was willing to make people step back and say, "That's weird, right? What's what's that doing there?" I think a lot of it had to do with where Di grew up too, because mm-hmm. he, growing up in Central Indiana, he was exposed to you know one of my favorite architects, William Langford and Theodore Moreau, Langford Moreau. And they their work there, some of those the courses around where Dai grew up are some you'll see some of the boldest 
features you can find on a golf course. And I think that was a very important, like die in a way, I think the great depression in the world war, what happened with architecture is there, there was this stop. The evolution of architects had an abrupt halt and we got this new crop. It was almost like architecture was starting over again, but die his influences came from this golden age architecture, what he grew up on. And you can see it early in his work. You know, his early work is very lay of the land, but then he would have these bold features, like bold greens, built up greens. And it would be very similar to that you see of Langford Moreau in Indiana, whether it's Max Kentucky or Culver or Harrison Hills, all that central Illinois or central Indiana work. It just it it mirrors it a lot, and I you know I think die with today's generation gets a bad rap because people think TPC sawgrass and that style, but there's a whole different genre of die. Um, the early die is is really so much different than the later die, and mm-hmm. you know where the lay of the land stuff like. Radrick Hills, the course up in Ann Arbor, is an incredible golf course. Like it's really fun. You know that that's the thing with die is is the different genres of die, and I think with any architect that lasts a long time, they go through evolution as an architect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things also about die is that while there are these identifiable phases of his career, you were talking about early die. There's a kind of middle period die with the TPC courses, and then there's late period die where you have some some really bizarre stuff, uh, <laughs> but. A lot of people have affection for early die for for obvious reasons. You know, you have the golf club, you have Harbor Town, and and these are are wonderful courses and, and quite a bit more subtle than a lot of his later work. And I think people have come to appreciate that now. But another thing that I notice about die is that there is diversity within each phase of his work. Right? He was he he produced a different golf course each time. He produced golf courses with individual stamps each time. And again, this was in an era when golf course production was becoming increasingly mechanized and and corporate. Well, Dai was really resisting that. And that's what we'll hear in this next clip from Mike Lee, who is the director of grounds at Whistling Straits or at the Kohler at, Properties. At the Kohler generally. Properties. He's the head man, yeah. but he's been there since 1993. Um, so very early. He saw Black Wolf Run when it was in construction on independently. He wasn't a part of the resort yet, but he, you know, oversaw construction of of both straights courses and and started working on Black Wolf Run when he first got his job there and and was in a lot of meetings with, you know, Pete and uh and and Herb Kohler and the the Kohler corporate team. So this was this interview has not aired yet. It is it is going to air in the future, but we we had to pull this clip because it was it was really interesting inside look at at Dai's work and especially Dai's work with a client. Yes. Okay. Great. So here it is. Mike Lee from a yet to be released episode of our Superintendent series. It's funny you say I haven't been around a lot of other designers because that's exactly right. I just don't know any other way. I just I. In the other places I worked, we just made almost no changes. I, I have no concept of the way other people do things, only the die way. And I kind of like that in, in many regards. But, 
you know, the, the way Pete handles things is completely the opposite of the way Kohler manages things as a company. They, they couldn't be more different, and that sparks a lot, a lot of conflict because on one hand, and I'm, I'm in the middle of this, right? On the one hand, I've got people telling me all the time how much things cost, when is it going to be done, who's going to do it, whole schedules of events, on what day are we going to finish this, all, all, all those a analytics and things you'd expect from a manufacturing company, which is really important to manufacturing. And P couldn't be the, the more opposite. I mean, we would go out and, and start looking at things. I'm thinking of straights 18, and I would bring my clipboard and my notepad because I start writing things down because I this is my list. I got to get these things done before you get back. And he would, you know, we'd get maybe a third of the way through and he'd say, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing this stuff down. He said, we're not doing any of this. I said, what do you mean? Because we're just talking here. We haven't figured this out yet. Put that away. You know, that was my small version of learning what they learned early on at, at Black Wolf is you showed up a meeting with Pete and you had paper with you or any plans under your, under your arm even of just the, the, the layout of the land, you weren't invited to the meeting. You were, he asked you to leave. <laughs> it's all in his head. And anyone with any kind of, um, you know, that's going to interfere with his ability to not keep it in his head by putting it on paper, you're out. I, I never thought about it that much, that much as the, the juxtaposition of, you know, golf course architects, like they're artists, you know, they're in their small shops. They, you know, they do their craft and, and everybody's got their own unique way. And then a, a major corporation that manages the property and, and there it's so regimented, the world, the corporate world where you have your procedures, your policies, your steps and everything. And, and golf architecture in general is just the complete opposite. It is. It, it makes for some interesting meetings because I would I would spend the whole day with Pete, and as you know, when you spend time with Pete, it's really a, a, a listening exercise, and you try to figure out at the end of the day what you're actually supposed to do, and then I would get back to put numbers to this, which is my primary role as you know managing projects, and and then putting the numbers together uh, to, to, for management to look at to see if we're going to do this project, and then I get grilled as to what Pete wants to do. And I really don't know. And so and I, 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 have no, I don't know because I don't have notes. And Pete really doesn't want me to know because he wants to do it himself. He doesn't want to share that because he hasn't worked it out in his head yet. He probably is as he's flying back home or to the next job. And, you know, all he's got to do is get it done by his next visit. And so then I was sitting in the meetings and basically have to make up what I think Pete's going to do. And, of course, it worked out completely different than I thought and, and in almost all cases better than I thought. So it's got a, a good and happy ending, but getting there is pretty rough. Talk, talk about the construction of Whistling Straits. And I think everybody is pretty aware, you know, that it was a, uh, you know, bluff with, you know, relatively flat land. You can see it driving in and out. And then, you know, you get into, you turn into the entrance of Whistling Straits. It's like you're entering a whole different world. And, um, you know, could you ever imagine what you started with and what you ended up with? So it'd be nice to, to sit here and chat and say we had this great vision and we're all with we this great team in place and we all had the vision and the leader was in front of us and all briefed us on what it was going to do and how great it was going to turn out. And we all fell in line and we we're all on the same page. It wasn't any of that at all. Um, 
it, it was exciting to be a part of uh, Whistling Straits even before the land was purchased because we were out looking at other pieces of property even before they ended up uh, with a property that um, Whistling Straits is on now. We went up to that piece of property because it was a, a, a blank slate and it was continuous. We had at least 500 acres and with one landowner rather than having to deal with maybe 12 or 14 landowners. And in, in the, the relationship between Pete and, and Herb was influenced by how they worked together at Black Wolf Run. They, they did some amazing stuff here, but as you read in the stories and stuff, they, they really came to a lot of disagreements. And of course, all of us operationally are caught in, in between that. So they got a lot of that worked out at Black Wolf Run. And when they started Whistling Straits, they had a really strong understanding and respect for each other. And that really helped things because it gave Pete full authority and autonomy to do what he wanted without really anybody telling him how to do it from Kohler Company's perspective. So we ran the project as a company. Uh, all the people and all the equipment were all fell in under Kohler Company as the general contractor and paid Pete as the, the designer. And Pete had free reign as to what he wanted to do. And nobody us operationally really knew what was going on out there. We knew where there was a route and we knew where the front nine was and the back nine was. We could generally get a feeling for where the Lavith hole was where we were standing because we could align ourselves with the bluff and the creek and stuff. Otherwise, we had no idea. And we would look out there and there would be, you know, you know, four trucks and three excavators, you know, working on a bluff area for six weeks straight and nothing changed. And we'd be like, what is this? Where is this golf hole? How come is it showing yet? It was all locked up in Pete's head and uh, his lead shaper uh, or construction superintendent. They're the only ones who knew how things were going to turn out. The rest of us just waited for it to happen. Was the, were those moments when you're seeing trucks of dirt coming in? And is that where is that a moment where you had the most doubt about what? what this is going to actually, you know. And I remember to... some of those conversations standing on the on these huge clay berms out there with our civil engineers and other people. And, you know, at that time, the talk was to charge $250 a round. And we laughed at it, quite frankly. We said, we're just, this is money just being buried in the ground. And if you know the, you know, we know the rest of the story now. And it's just the opposite. It's financially it's an extremely successful business. What would you say is most overlooked about, you know, Pete Dye as, a, as our architect? I haven't even thought about that before. The most overlooked. Or what, what do you think, that, not necessarily the most, what, what did you maybe overlook before? I, I think maybe for your listener's standpoint, they may not realize what an amazing salesperson Pete Dye is. And I think the people that, that know Pete's background, he got into this business late. And he stayed till he was what ninety or eighty eight or whatever, still in it to some degree, I guess, or just recently retired due to health issues. But um, he's an amazing salesperson when he has to be. And so I was fortunate to be a part of some of those conversations when Pete really wanted to do something. He was trying to convince Herb to do it. I would sometimes be the fly in the wall, or sometimes be you know around close enough to hear Pete go into sales mode, and he's phenomenal at it. It's, I mean, all, the most prolific architects are all great salespeople. Yeah. You know, that's, you see that in, across the board. But yeah. um, in terms of, uh, you talked a little bit about where Herb Kohler and, and Pete Dye would butt heads. Is it, was there one specific 
Was there one spot or difference that consistently came up uh, with, you know, in terms of owner and, and architect? Obviously, you know, there's there's a little bit different uh, viewpoints from each side of it. And I'm just curious if there if there was a a specific, you know, kind of consistent one spot where they. Yeah, that one spot are, are, are trees all the way through from from the construction of Black Wolf Run to Whistling Straits. Uh, Pete had to, to fight for every tree that went out there. None of them came easy. And and uh, to his credit, being a salesperson, he sold the idea to Herb, and Herb finally let him cut down the trees where he did. There's a few out there that are that he never got. And, I think and I Pete can still remembers some them. of them. <laughs> so a bit of a story on that is we uh, we regressed the Black Wolf Run in 2009-2010. Before we went to all that, work we thought we better just make sure if there's anything that mr kohler and pete want to change on the design we do that before we regress everything so herb asked pete to go out on the golf course and say why don't you look at some things and make some recommendations and i'll look at them and pete picked up off exactly where he left off during the construction everything that he didn't get his way on he remembered everything and he put it in a list and he sent it to herb and herb just smiled and laughed and he remembered everything that he got on his list and he didn't change a thing. So um, those guys went back and forth all the time on things like trees for the most part. The other thing I would say would be the location of hazards, but to a much lesser extent. Mr. Kohler typically didn't get involved with major issues like routing and things like that. It was what land are you gonna use of mine? Placing hazards from a few, you know, Mr. Kohler just had some opinions on the depth of bunkers and usually he wanted it much harder than Pete is the way that went down. And then, and then trees for sure. So, so uh, hazards, deeper hazards than Pete wanted. So more, more challenging, really. Two feet above your head instead of chest high. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Pete, that that's interesting. So uh, from Mr. Kohler's standpoint, it, it, you know, Whistling Straits was always going to be a championship course. Absolutely, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Okay, and so I think think something that comes out of that clip is how Dye's approach was sort of naturally ill-fitted to a corporate structure. And one of the reasons it was like that, I think, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, is that he was a design-build person. And we've heard this a lot in the the days since he died, that one of his huge areas of influence was on the process of golf architecture, where he insisted on being on site more than many other architects were at the time. And he insisted on having his team building features in the field and personally crafting things. And I think that that approach came up against the Kohler approach, but it sounds like they eventually found a decent middle ground but is that is that sort of what you're getting from from your discussion with mike yeah totally i i think it's the constant battle of of mass production where you you develop your specs you draw your plans out and then you men and you know this is what kohler's business is you know they design their sink they draw it to spec and then they they build that sink and they mass produce the sink out exactly how you know it was designed and and you hear Especially, you know, with every single golf architect that that does the practices design build now is like, well, you got to you can I can draw your plans. You, you hear so many of them say this. I can draw your plans, but it might not look like this when it's done, because I might be in the field and realize that something over here works way better than what I thought 
in in so many decisions and iterations and improvis- improvisations of a plan happen in the field and and this was die and and Pete die and Alice die to tea like you heard when Alice die passed like all the stories of Alice die coming over and saying like now Pete like don't you think that's a little you know little harsh on players or saying, you know, maybe we should do this that, you know, like with the Island green and 17 at Sawgrass. Um, Or or maybe we should actually think about where we're putting the forward tees. Exactly. So you think about that style and you think about, I I think any sort of it, it was this idea die was this idea of artistic nature in golf design that it wasn't, it had swung to the engineering mold of build the spec plan. And I think that's much like golf, where golf has an artistic side and a scientific side, an analytical side. Architecture has this too, where you have the building, the construction is very, you know, there's a lot of science that goes into golf architecture, but then there's this artistic side. And, and Dye was really the craftsman, the artistic craftsman, changing an era full of guys that were kind of paint by the lines color with inside the lines yeah and that that craftsmanship was really important and a a feature of Dye's work uh, throughout his career and something that he insisted on repeatedly you even hear people like davis love saying you know his pete Dye anecdote is that Dye told him that you're not really an architect unless you get on a bulldozer so it, it seemed like that was his consistent message both publicly and within his design projects that you you had to go out and do it yourself otherwise you'd turn out work that didn't really have much of an identity um and and obviously we we see that influence in the architecture that's being done today and so the next batch of clips that we have here are from Tom Doak and Jim Urbina, who are two architects who studied with Pete Dye early on in their careers. And here they are talking about Dye's influence on them. Tom Doak from episode six of The Yoke with Doak. You know, when I, when I, got, when I started in college seriously trying to pursue this, and I, I didn't know anybody in the golf business, so I just wrote letters to people in the golf business. Give me advice. What should I do? Who should I work for? This is so. This is 1980. Every single person in the golf business said, "Work for Pete Dye." I mean, there wasn't any. Oh, you should work for Trent Jones. Oh, you should work for Mike Hurdson. Oh, you should work for whoever. Every single person, you got to go work for this guy. Partly because he was so hands-on. And partly because he was so passionate about what he did. Um, But so I can't even, you know, like after I got back from my scholarship to spend a year in the UK, Mr. Jones, Trent Jones Sr., who'd gone to Cornell 30, 60, 50 years before I did, got into, he'd been up at Cornell and they told him they had this student overseas. And he was like, well, I'll have him get in touch with me when he gets back. And he would have offered me a job to go work in his office in Europe. And fortunately, I'd already worked for Mr. Dye for one summer of construction. And I was hooked on the idea that it was about construction and it wasn't about drawing plans. So, you know, so I, so that didn't appeal to me at all. And if I hadn't had that one summer of construction experience, it might have been different, even though 
just like these guys have talked about, one of the most appealing things to me about this business and about golf in general is spending your time outdoors. You know, sitting in an office drawing plans of this stuff does not interest me at all. I want to be out there doing it. I think it, the work benefits from that. So if I had to work for anybody else at the time, I mean, at the time, Pete Dye was the only guy who was out there building stuff himself and hiring young guys that were interested in golf to help him build stuff. Now there's a lot because we all learned from Pete or, you know, Bill Core and I learned from Pete and then a lot of other guys have learned from us. So there's a lot of people taking this approach now, but it was really rare that I can't imagine doing it any other way. And here we have another Tom Dote clip, this one from episode 16. You know, a lot of people are very critical of Mr. Dye, which to me is crazy. I mean, nobody that's ever spent any time with Pete Dye would criticize the man at all. I mean, he's he's given a lot to a lot of people. He's always been very open about the game and what he thinks is right about it and what he thinks is wrong about it. He had me ghostwriting articles about how the golf equipment was getting out of hand 30 years ago. That more than 30 years ago, he's, he's still sort of a role model to me, especially in the way he went about the work, how involved he was in it personally, and and that you know he made decisions out in the field and he changed it, he changed his mind on the fly to make something better. He wasn't afraid to you know do that, and you know even if it, even if the client was nervous about it, you know he's like it's going to be fine. I'm here. I'll get it sorted out. And you know people see our work as being completely different because my golf courses don't look like his golf courses, Mm -hmm. but the way that they're built and, you know, and even a lot of the philosophy behind them. I mean, I'm building golf courses that are challenging to people. I just put the challenge in different places and I don't make it all about length because I'm not building golf courses for the tour. And now Jim Urbina from episode 68. I never played golf. I didn't understand golf. I was like Seth Rayner. You know the famous quote that McDonald talked about Seth Rayner? He didn't know a tennis ball from a golf ball. That was me. And I'm very thankful to Pete Dye, who I got my career started with. He embraced the work that I was doing for him, the creativity that he allowed me to do as a shaper. I started as a shaper. Uh, I knew how to draw because I was a high school drafting teacher by trade, but I I started as a shaper. And I didn't think I wanted to be in this golf business, but the more and more Pete Dye sent me around looking at his golf courses, Old Marsh and PGA West, uh, all these golf courses he had done, the golf club, on and on and on, the more I started understanding the beauty of it. And his son, Perry, died, sending me around to other golf courses, allowing me to go to Cypress Point. Uh, the die sending me to St. Andrews in Scotland. They hooked me, man. They hooked me big time. And they hooked me because they showed me a different way to build a golf course. Not that I knew any other way than just hands-on. I realized that the only way to do it right, as Pete Dye told me, was to do it yourself. And 
because they taught me from the ground up, I understood and I appreciated how these things were built. And to go on to work at Pasa Temple and learn from Mackenzie and uh, Rainer courses, uh, Yamas Hall, I did work at Mid-Ocean, uh, San Francisco Golf Club, Garden City, uh, the Bob Link Club, on and on and on. Recently, Sankety Head uh, in Nantucket, Emerson Armstrong, one-off design. I started to realize all of these guys had the same passion. And it's addictive. And it's it's all-encompassing. And it's funny when I sometimes I send emails or text out at 2 in the morning because I'm thinking about golf. I'm all wrapped up in it. And you want, you say, well, why are you wrapped up in it? You didn't grow up in the game. Well, because the way Pete and his son Perry shared their experiences with me, they allowed me to travel. They allowed me to see new and, 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 and beautiful places. Cypress Point when I was a punk, the National Golf Links before I was, uh, before I was 30, before it was fashionable to travel and, and look at architecture. And it just became all-encompassing. And because I like working with my hands, I like building things, it was a perfect scenario for me. And for them to allow me to draw, uh, do grading maps, uh, work in the office, do drainage plans, it was all just a big uh, uh, foundation that I had no idea what I was doing, but I was doing the best I could do because that's what my mom and dad taught me in the little town I grew up in. Whatever you do, do it well work hard at it, and uh, the benefits will, will reap. And, and they have, and I've had the chance to meet some wonderful people, and all because Pete allowed me to seek out and look at different golf courses, and he embraced me, he trusted me, and he let me build and be creative. And who doesn't want to be creative? And who doesn't want to build something cool that they could stand and say, I built that? And who doesn't want to be out in the open air and the open space and to travel and to see beautiful places? I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Well, I didn't think I did. And 37, 38 years later, I'm still doing it. And I still have that passion. And the day that it burns out is the day I'm done. But whether it's an interview a couple of days ago uh, or working, uh, I'm working with Mike Kaiser on uh, some projects, uh, working with uh, new uh, new designs, working with restorations, it's the passion. And when that passion's gone, you know, I'll probably be done. But uh, maybe sometimes it's too much passion. <laughs> I can't sleep at all. Yeah. Uh, I, but that's how I got started. I end up doing the same thing. I am I like I you get you get crazed. Um, but um, you get crazed. It the a lot of people say that we're in this second golden age and something that seems to be to me a common theme is Pete Dye with yes. I mean and I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for what he did well I think Pete Dye was people always ask me about the Mount Rushmore of golf course architects and Pete Dye should be up there and you know you're going to say well that's just because you work for him well Pete Dye taught me about detail and taught me about being hands on and look at how many people he spun off. Uh, look how many people worked for him. Lee Schmidt, Brian Curley, Bill Coor. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And I think about all of the people who got that chance to work for Pete, and I think, wow, we all had that same uh, 
uh, attachment. Uh, Pete putting his hand on your shoulder, saying, "You know, this is what we're going to do here, and trust in you." Uh, Tom Doak working for Pete Dye, pretty cool. Pretty cool that we all had a chance to work for uh, for the man. Andy, is there anything that you'd like to pull out from that clip from Jim Urbina? Yeah, I think Urbina's experience with Die, where he was somebody that didn't know anything about golf, he went there and, and started working, as he would say, off the rec, you know, just digging holes. That's what he was doing. And, and he became, you know, now where he's a independent golf architect that's building like a pretty impressive resume. Die could take guys that didn't know anything about golf and teach them golf. A similar situation is what how Core and Crenshaw approach their shapers. Keith Reb would be one that falls into this bucket. He he got on a Core Crenshaw job, but he was he was a he would build highways, you know, before he became a golf architect. And it's this this sideways where Core and Crenshaw talk about how they don't have any bad habits. And I think that's the thing with, with Dai is not only was he great in his own right, but he also had an incredible eye for talent. And you have to consider him a great manager where he empowered his employees to do things. And, and knowing having the you know ability to put the ego aside and, and say a lot of times, hey, this person might do this better than I do is one of the key traits to great managers. And I think that is something where you look at the success of people that, you know, worked under Pete Dye. And Pete Dye was clearly attempting to to create great architects. You know, I think, I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure that he was very pro them going out and working for other for uh, for themselves and wanted that growth and tr- progression from from the guys that work for them. Yeah, there's a generosity there that's a feature as you say of good managers, good bosses, but also of great teachers, you know? Um he he seemed to teach in a kind and subtle way and he honored the artistic integrity, the artistic potential of the people who were working under him. So you know, just shifting more broadly, as you've gone through all these clips, I mean, you went back and listened to these podcasts again and, and pulled out these clips. What is one thing that you've been thinking about more than anything else in these past couple of days about the effect that Die had on this discipline? Just in general, I, I think about him as an innovator. I think he was the guy... You know, you look at all the the history of innovation in different industries, and there's always one company or one innovation that bridges so many other, you know, it, it is a bridge to the, you know, greatness. And, and you look at, like, the Apple computer, for example, it, you know, it led to kind of Microsoft taking dominance for a while before Apple came back, right? But, like, there's a bridge there right with the computers and and a lot of people like to bang on die some and i think it's very it's understanding that pete die was pushing architecture in a different direction and at the end of the day he was working for developers who were all of 
the old guard and you know he was proposing ideas that were extraordinarily different than everybody else in the field and profession at the time and he was proposing these ideas to the same developers that were listening to 10 other architects come in and tell them this was the way so you have to understand there was some give and take and and Pete Dye was the guy that got us to where to the spot that Bill Corr, Tom Doak could really thrive as golf architects and Gil Hans and, you know, this era today where, you know, we have craftsmanship, we have, you know, gold, modern architecture that adheres to, you know, these strategic principles and this design build craftsmanship that is, is really in vogue today is because of the, the groundwork that Pete Dye laid and getting it to here. You know, a perfect example would be, you know, Dick Youngscap, who was, who is the founder of Sandhills. His first golf course project was Firethorn in, in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. And it was with Pete Dye. Pete Dye was there on site. Like he had learned and, that project doesn't go well, Sandhills doesn't happen. And if Sandhills doesn't happen, it's very unlikely that Mike Kaiser, who was a member of Sandhills, builds Band and Dunes. And who knows where we are today without without that. So you start to think about it at a very minutia level, beyond just, you know, the architectural tree of Doak and Core working for Pete Dye. But you think about just that, you know, not having the client to pushing the client, the, the client side of the thing is a, is a big aspect of it, is that he also pushed clients outside their comfort zone, beyond inspiring younger architects. He pushed clients, you know, in a direction. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that we, I, actually, I don't know. I, I guess I haven't asked you about this. There are certainly Pete Dye golf courses that I've played that I didn't particularly enjoy that I didn't really think were very good golf courses. I've also played some Pete Dye golf courses that I thought were great, but there's some variety in my response to Dye golf courses. But a lot of that makes sense when you consider, as you're saying, the clients that he was working for, the purpose toward which his golf courses were put. And when you think about it in that context, the fact that he was doing interesting work that he was doing craft driven work within that business model of the residential golf course or of the what was then considered the modern golf course it is pretty remarkable what he did and if you want to understand the transition from golf architecture as it was practiced in the 70s 80s and for much of the 90s to golf architecture as it's practiced now there are a number of things that you would look at, right? There are a number of different influences that drove change in golf architecture, but a huge part of that story is always going to be Pete Dye and his design firm and his collaboration with Alice Dye and his mentorship of these architects who were in his company. Yeah, I think you could look at it from like, look at rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Now, like with... Would Led Zeppelin have been like widely appreciated and, and loved if they had came out in the early 60s? Probably not. Could they have existed in the, yeah. in the early 60s? It, everything right? built. Where, where would all the influences been? Exactly. And everything built like, you know, the 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 movement from, you know, say the 50s style music to 
70s rock and roll. There was a lot of bands that came and went that pushed it a little bit further. And that's the way I always think about Die, is that Die, he, he's never going to be acclaimed as the greatest, like if you had one golf course to build, like the greatest. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, of influence and importance, he's one that you could say would be on Mount Rushmore. I wouldn't put him right. on like my personal Mount Rushmore for like golf courses I want to play. But if you said who were the most important and influential golf course architects, he would most definitely be on Mount Rushmore. And you you heard Bill Corr say it toward the beginning of this podcast that Pete Dye changed the direction of golf architecture, not once, but twice. And how many golf architects can claim to have done that even once? Yeah. And and I think Jeff Minge's comments about his boldness and his uh, he's mm-hmm. unapologetic about his architecture and even to yeah. even to standing up to PGA Tour pros, which we see <laughs> yeah. is still an ongoing problem. Is you know we need more Pete Dyes in golf architecture that say screw him. Like uh, we see just this week with Trinity Forrest getting pulled from the schedule because you know it's it's different and golf and golfers don't want to go you know. Great architecture is just like great art. It, anything that evokes a reaction is good. You don't want it to to evoke nothing. You know whether mm-hmm. you the thing about Dye's work was it evoked reaction, whether good or bad. And and you have to say that's a plus. That means he's doing something that's different and unique, and that in itself is is important. I'm always happy to see a Pete Dye course on television on tour. I always look forward to that. I might not be the hugest fan of TPC Sawgrass in the world, but I look forward to seeing that golf course on television. And yeah, and that's that's a tribute to his boldness. And and something we didn't really even talk about that much, though I hope it came through in the clips, is that Pete Dye's personality had an effect on a lot of people and that was really important to the impact that he had. You know, just the way, as you were referring to earlier, just the way that he was that he dealt with complaints from PGA Tour pros. I mean, a lot of the pros were actively hostile towards his work, right? You go back and look at some of these quotes from, you know, the Peter Jacobsons of the world. I think Paul Azinger was in there too. Am oh, yeah. I calling him out? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, you know, from, I don't know. Maybe not uh, Paul Azinger. Maybe not. Sorry. I'm sorry, Paul. Um, Tom, Corey Tom Watson, Corey yeah, Pavin. Didn't Corey Pavin. Corey Pavin was particularly severe. Right? Yeah. He won that uh, week too. You know, there was this was the case from TPC Sawgrass forward. I think the pros generally liked Harbor Town, though there was maybe a little bit of grumbling about that. But once Pete Dye entered that phase of his more difficult golf courses, his stadium golf courses, the pros really resisted. And, you know, whatever you think of the legitimacy of the pros complaints, you have to have a regard for how Pete Dye reacted to them. Basically, he said, it's what I was going for. That's what, you know, he wasn't defensive about it. He had a sense of humor. He just took it and he held his ground. And this is where it's so important to remember who he was building courses for. These were, he was hired by the PGA tour to build tournament championship golf courses. These golf courses that so often you hear the, the, the retail golfer complain about they're they're golf courses that were built to host tournaments built to to test the pros you know these weren't golf courses built by mike kaiser to be for the retail golfer as he likes to call it 
is the sole purpose of them. The, the what Pete Dye was going was to challenge PGA Tour players, and that's an important thing to remember with with golf courses. And and Tom Doak said it like I rarely build golf courses for championship golf and tournament. When Pete Dye was built, every golf course that Pete Dye built was for tournament golf with the intention of ho- hosting championship golf, and that's an important thing. How Dye's kind of career shifted wasn't I don't think necessarily he you know what he wanted to build shifted it was what he was building for shifted right his early work was you know you're getting the jobs you can and most of those jobs are focused on clubs like these are golf courses built for members not for PGA tour players and then the later when you got pop when he got popular and we've seen some similar thing with Gil Hance where Gil Hance is now the guy to go hire for a championship golf course. You know, if you want to, you know, refresh your championship golf course, it seems like everybody's hiring Gil Hans. That wasn't what Gil's original career was. He he made his name by restoring some great classic golf courses that have no intention of hosting major championship golf. Yeah, I mean, is Pete Dye building a stadium golf course for just a membership? No. I mean, the idea is ridiculous. Obviously, he wouldn't build a stadium golf course unless there is a, you know, a presumed crowd to fill the stadium. And he executed that idea in TPC Sawgrass. And I don't know if you've talked to people who have been to the Players' Championship, but apparently it's the most fun thing pretty much that you can do. Oh, it's an incredible, um, it's incredible viewing experience. Like you can it's see, great, right? yeah, you can see all kind. It, it is comparatively to other, you, you know, you go to a different U S open course every, every year. And the, the, the way the viewer experience as a fan, the way you can see shots at Sawgrass is unlike anything I've seen at a, at a U.S. open venue or really for that matter, many other tournament venues. And that, that was the intention and, and he really pulled it off. And so there's so much to dig into in uh, Pete Dye's career, Pete Dye's work. I'm sure that we'll continue talking about it in the coming months. Um, but in the meantime, it was, it was good to hear from some of these architects who have worked for him and uh, to whom Pete Dye meant a lot. Uh, it was really cool to reflect on these clips. Yeah, it was fun.